0: Paul writes Philippians chapter two, verse one. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, verse two, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. And there were many people then, uh, many well-known scholars, that argued we were entering a new age. An age of peace. Totalitarianism, at least in Eastern Europe, communism had... Uh, had ceased in Eastern Europe, and uh, the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, all of its satellite states, uh, were no longer at odds in the same way that we had been for the previous decades. And those who came along, those who were in the know, those who wrote many books said, this is the new age, the new order of humanity, where conflict, global conflict will end, and we will see peace, and we'll see stability, and we'll see order. And two decades have passed. And if you've been alive and at all cognizant, reading newspapers or just living life, um, you can talk about Bosnia, you can talk about Serbia, you can talk about Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Egypt, Syria. You can pick your spot where all these old tensions, ancient tensions over centuries that were kept in some check... By these two superpowers, as their powers diminished, these old hostilities uh, began to rise up again. And we've seen over the past two decades much bloodshed, lots of civil war, lots of fighting, lots of genocide. And the question is, as many of you asked today, when Christ had come, he was this guy was obviously very wrong. How could these men have been so wrong about this age to come that we are now living in? How, could they, how can we be such a violent people all the time, always fighting, always going against one another, always bringing ourselves into conflict? Why? And that question, historically, has been asked for centuries by great minds throughout human history. Paul, actually, in, the, in these five verses, he shows us the standard, and then he answers that question. In fact, if you look with me at verses 1 and 2... He's talking to the church at Philippi. He says, this is how you ought to be as a church. But this is how we're supposed to be as a people prior to the fall. Look at the standard. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He said in verse two, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He's saying there's supposed to be harmony, not fighting. There's supposed to be a collective unity, not strife. You're supposed to be loving each other, not killing each other. The standard that was established by God with man before the fall was this. And yet, when we look around and we read the newspaper and we see our own lives, we don't see that. We see fighting, we see strife, we see animosity, we see hatred, we see vengeance being exercised man to man, woman to woman. We don't get along, we don't work together, we don't have the same affection for one another. The model that's established here that Paul gives to the church at Philippi, and it was supposed to be for all of humanity, is not what plays itself out. The norm is not love, it's not peace, it's war, it's fighting, it's anger. And so, the Apostle Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, takes on this question, why are we such a violent species? Why are we always fighting? Why are we always at each other's throats? Why do you turn on the news at 5.30 and do you hear about outbreaks of war in places throughout the world? Why? And then he doesn't just leave us this question because that wouldn't be very helpful, right? He gives us a radical remedy, a radical solution in five verses. And it actually goes to the very base of our entire faith in Christianity. So Paul is going to show us three things. One, the deception of fighting. The deception of it, two, the source of it, and three, the solution. The deception, the source, and the solution. Let's begin with the deception. One of the major things, one of the major problems we have as fallen creatures is we have a tendency to oversimplify conflict. When we do this, especially when we're on the outside of a conflict, take two ethnic groups at odds with each other. You're not in either, and you stand outside, and you see them fighting, you see them bickering, you see them spilling blood, and you see them not getting along, maybe for centuries, and you on the outside stand, and you say, I don't know, I don't get this. It's so easy to see the pain you're bringing in each other's lives, the harm that you're bringing is way worse than the issue at hand. So do this, you know, get together, shake hands, make up, be nice to each other. And we have this ridiculous, oversimplified perspective when we're on the outside. I mean, how many of you have read the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelites? For decades, right? And you keep saying, can you just stop already? Can you just stop? I mean, on the outside, we see it, we read about it. Can you forget about the the war 50 years ago or 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago? Can you just stop? Can you you make peace? And on the outside, okay, so uh, maybe not war, marriage. If you've ever counseled a married couple that's going at it, I mean, they're just firing at each other and you bring them in you may sit down with them and you have a cup of coffee and say listen you know you need to stop doing this you need to stop doing that you need to seek forgiveness for this and on the outside it looks so simple and you give these you know these good godly truthful claims but on the inside they feel trapped they said I want to but I don't want to I try but I always fail and every time I seek peace it blows up in my face the problem is this on the outside it always looks easy because on the inside, we feel trapped because there's a much deeper issue at hand. When I was a kid, my brother, my older brother, he was a, he was a Trekkie, Star Trek fan. I'm not a big Trekkie, so don't talk to me about Star Trek after the sermon, all right? Um, but I do remember a few of the episodes that he made me watch, and one was so compelling. Um, some of the themes throughout the, the episodes were, were fantastic. One, uh, the USS Enterprise is, you know, some billion light years away or somewhere in the galaxy, and they encountered this alien species. And the species, they're half black and they're half white. Literally, half black on one side and half white on the other. You seen this? Some of you are laughing. You have. Okay. Okay. And Captain Kirk and, of course, Dr. Spock, they're there with them, and they're trying to, to bring their, the morality into it and trying to bring reason into the situation because these the this species, they're fighting. There's civil war. There's strife taking place. And they're trying to show all the pain and suffering that is a result of their fighting and uh, uh, Captain Kirk actually says I don't get it I don't get why you're fighting You're the same species And one of the guys says What? What do you mean? He goes Well He goes You're the same species You're you're half black on one side And you're half white on the other Why why are you killing each other? And the guy One of the guys responds He says Captain Don't you see? I'm black on the right side He's black on the left side I'm white on the left side He's white on the right side It's so obvious And of course Offering the solution from the outside, Captain Kirk and Spock were unable to convey what the real problem was. On the inside was a lack of trust, was a a, a starvation of glory. If any of you have looked at your parents and you said, oh, you could do a much better job, but you're not a parent. You've never done this, I know. Husbands and wives, you're at odds with each other, but you're not married. And you say, oh, this solution's so simple. Or maybe you see neighbors going at it, but you never live next to a very difficult neighbor. On the outside, it's, uh, the, the fix is easy. It's a quick fix. Just do this. You do that. Make peace. Shake hands, and we'll be fine. And what seeps in, the deception of the fighting is this. On the outside, it looks so easy. And so those on the outside have a superior complex. Complex. Where they think, well, we're better than those on the inside. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't fight like that. We wouldn't bring this type of harm and and bloodshed. And so the great deception for centuries has been an outside-in solution. And that is this. It's education. All we need to do... It, because right on the outside, the, the solution's easy. The people on the inside must be stupid. They're not smart enough to see it. So all we, all we have to do is what? Train them, teach them, and show them, and then they will see what we see, and they'll stop all the fighting. The Palestinians, the Israelites, they'll shake hands. And the Golden, Golden Heights and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, they'll all live kumbaya, peace, harmony, right? In the 1990s, when I was teaching at De Anza, there were several of these... You know, uh, ad council campaigns that came out on campus. You know, the, the hate with the no hate sign, uh, sign through it. Um, there was one that caught my eye and I spent some time on it in class. And it said, no one is born a bigot. And it was written underneath a poster of infants, babies from different races. And I mean, the teaching's profound because you know what it's saying. It's saying that we start off good and it's the environment that screws us up. Right? It's the teaching that screws us up. It's the bad parenting. It's the bad model. It's the culture. So if we could just create a culture and, a, and, a, and parents and a community and teaching that taught them the right thing, then we wouldn't always be fighting. We wouldn't always be at each other's throats. And we wouldn't have this spirit of rivalry and strife. And you say, as believers, Nonsense. Because we know. It's not the outside that's the problem. It's the inside. We know this. In fact, we can go back for centuries. The Greeks, for those of you who remember your Greek history, their understanding of philosophy was that philosophy would educate man to a point where we would no longer have strife, no longer have human discord. We just need to teach people. They're ignorant. What they need is knowledge. If they have knowledge, they won't fight. And yet we've seen throughout human history some of the most well-educated people ...exercise the greatest violence against mankind. And so at some point in time you have to say... "No, wait a minute... ...if we keep saying education is the issue... ...if we can get people educated they'll stop fighting... ...and for centuries we've been trying to educate people... ...and for centuries we keep fighting... ...you have to conclude what? It's not education. It's not environment. It's not parenting. It's not the culture. It's not outside in. It's something else. And of course the Bible comes along and says... ...well of course. It's the heart of mankind... It's the human heart that is the very problem. All the strife, all the anxiety, all the fighting, all the discord that we've seen throughout all of human history is a result of the human heart. It's not a lack of education. It's not bad parenting. That'll make the situation worse, yes. It's not a little strip of land in the Middle East. It's the human heart. And so the Bible comes along and says, stop being so deceived about why you're fighting. Stop offering these oversimplified solutions to end the fighting. Let's deal with some real issues. The heart of man, sin, glory, starvation. If you've gone to a doctor before because you're sick and they misdiagnose you and they give you medicine or they recommend a procedure and you get worse, do you go back to your doctor and thank them? Thank you so much for the misdiagnosis, right? In order to treat a sickness, you have to have a proper diagnosis. With a proper diagnosis, there's proper treatment. There's a remedy. There's a solution. There's a medicine, right? The problem with man and discord and fighting is sin in our own hearts. And therefore, any solution from the outside, anytime we argue, we just need more money, we need more education, we need better parenting, you're always arguing outside in and it will always fail. In fact, we can go a step further and say, it just makes the matters worse, right? Because we think we have an answer and we apply the answer and then we get worse. We get more sick. So... What does Paul offer us here? What is the biblical diagnosis for mankind's fighting spirit? He identifies, second point, the source of it. In this passage, in verse 3, Paul actually uses two words. In the rest of the sermons on these two words. Because they, in one verse, Paul, Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit actually identifies the foundation and root cause of all human discord for all of human history. It's a good verse to memorize, by the way. To be one you want to commit to memory. In verse 2, he shows the contrast, right? In verse 2, he said, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then he comes along in verse 3 and says, Rather than what? Rather than living lives out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather than living lives fighting, bickering, being self-centered. The source. Two words. You ready? Selfish ambition and vain conceit. And I can tell you right now, the NIV does a really poor job of translating these two words. Especially, it is two words. In the Greek, it's two. You're right. Here, it's four. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. In fact, the, the translators are all over the place because they can't, the words are so rich and so important to our understanding of uh, being saved by grace in Christ that they Well, I'll just give you a few. The NASB says, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. The ASV uses faction and vainglory. The ESV uses rivalry and conceit. And it's important. These two words offer two things. One, there's an order. Selfish ambition is the symptom. It's not the disease. It's the symptom. It's what we see. It's the external manifestation of the disease. The second word, though, vain conceit is the root cause And and I'll show you that in a minute. There's actually a better word for it. But let's deal with the symptom first. In the Greek, the word is erytheion. I had my kids memorize that this morning as we were driving to church. That's what they get to do, do Greek. And it literally means this, a strong feeling of hostility or opposition, better a hyper-fighter. I mean, you think of ultimate fighting, right? Someone, you think of vain conceit, you think of someone who's just totally self-consumed. That's not a good translation. I That's a terrible translation. It's someone who, is a, who has a spirit of rivalry. Not someone who is fighting to live because they need to survive and defend themselves. Someone who lives to fight. You know people like this. They're in a constant state of, let's go, come on. Always wanting to go at it. Always wanting to argue. Always wanting to contest you. Always doing battle. Pleasant to be around, Right? Yes. Constantly fighting. The spirit of rivalry is not a spirit of submission to the truth of God. Now, okay, so listen. This is not a sermon where you can go, okay, happy thoughts, happy thoughts. You've got to engage your mind here. This is, this, we're going to go a little deep. We're actually going to go to the bottom of the pool in this one and swim around. So you've got to hold your breath, okay? So do something to get that oxyhemoglobin going up in the head. The spirit of rivalry is a fighting spirit that does not subject itself to the truth of God. The spirit of rivalry is governed by my needs, personal needs. Okay? And it looks like this. The question you ask yourself, how do you relate to others? Is your relationship with other people, friends, family, husband, children, brothers and sisters in Christ, is it governed by your personal needs, your ego, your desire, your satisfaction, your happiness, or is it governed by the truth of God? Is it governed by your prejudice me, what I need, what I want, or an objective standard of right and wrong given to us by God himself. And you can, you can know this by how you enter discussions with people. If two people, if their relationships are governed by truth, then they can actually come together and they can say, Listen, you have your needs, I have my needs. We're at we're, we're conflict here. I understand you've got personal needs in this, and I've got personal needs, and I want this done, you want that done, but let's do this. Let's come together over the word of God. And let's have the truth of God govern our relationship and the outcome of this crisis. We call that a Berean spirit, not a spirit of rivalry. Where you're going to come in and say, you know what? I'm going to submit myself to God's holy word. I'm going to come under his guidance and I'm going to listen to him. And whatever he says through scripture, I will align myself with. That's a spirit of truth, not rivalry. But if you come in as a hyper fighter, And you come into a discussion like this, and you say, my needs have to be first, my group has to be first, my people have to be first, and it's always about you, your group, your people, then you're prejudiced already. Before you enter the discussion, you're prejudiced. You're not listening to truth, you're not listening to biblical reason, and you certainly won't hear biblical counsel from brothers and sisters in Christ. This is about you, and what you need, and what you want. Ultimately, it's about protecting self, right? i got to protect me, and my wants and my life and my future. And I can't have truth come in and make that go the other way. The hyperfighter has exclusive relationships. If you're a friend with the hyperfighter, you're only a friend with them as long as what? As long as you agree with them. As soon as you disagree with the hyper fighter, now you're on the other side, and now you're fighting with them as well. The hyperfighter realizes, or should, that everything revolves around them. The entire universe is about them, their needs, their wants, their interests, and their outcome as they see it. You know, <laughs> it's hard to even talk about, but seriously, um, there were thousands of people that were misled. I mean, they did some... Uh, you guys are reading about this. They did some crazy things, quitting their jobs, selling their homes, and all these things. And then they woke up and went, hmm? hmm? And they, were, they didn't listen. There were, there, was lo- there were lots of people that were actually giving biblical truth, biblical counsel. Saying, we do not know the day, we do not know the hour. So if you say you know the day and you know the hour, according to Scripture, you're automatically wrong. So truth went out there. But those who aligned themselves with this, were, there was a personal need. Who knows what it was? Maybe they didn't want to go to work on Monday. I don't know. You know, maybe they were in massive debt and they wanted to get out. Christ coming, that's a good solution, right? Maybe they were suffering a terminal illness and this would end that. But a personal need usurped truth. And therefore, they went awry and they led many people awry also. Now, if you're sitting there going, you know what? I'm so glad this is not me. I'm so glad I'm not a hyper fighter. I'm, I'm a nice, complacent, loving kind of person. Everybody is on the hyper fighting scale somewhere. You take your erythian your scale, you're somewhere on that. I mean, either you're always fighting or sometimes you fight. But everybody engages in this at some point in time. Some of us are more more so than others where you forsake biblical reasoning and you forsake biblical truth in that crisis moment because this has to go this way. You've got to get this job. You've got to pass this class. This relationship has to work out. And so your needs supersede truth. And those on the outside saying, this is so easy, right? Just, Just fix it. Just do this. And on the inside, you're saying, I can't hear truth. I must suppress it because my needs must go first. And what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, you have a universal problem here. People more often than not are fighting for their needs, not for truth. I mean, in most conflict resolution, most of it, when you deal with truth, it falls on deaf ears. If you've ever sat in a room, if you haven't, come and I'll, I'll let you have this experience. And two people are at odds and you bring truth and both argue against the truth. They're fighting for their own needs. And they'll be the first one to say, I'm standing for principle. This is about God's word. They'll both argue this. Funny how that happens. God must be wrong, right? When their needs are going first. When their protection of themselves is going first. So if you say to yourself, this is not me. Paul's writing the church at Philippi. Of all the letters that Paul writes, Philippi is the one that's the most glowing. I mean, this is a church that's walking right with Christ. And what he's saying is, listen, the best people and the best churches have a spirit of rivalry, a hyper-fighting spirit that causes discord and factions and fighting and and messes up lives. It messes up marriages. He's saying you must guard your heart and your mind always against this spirit of selfish ambition, of fighting. We are contentious people. And even if you are a quiet, humble person, you know that deep down you're contentious as well. And when it comes up, people say, oh, I've never seen that news. like you, you have no idea. I have a spirit of rivalry just like everybody else. Why? You're born of Adam and Eve. We are subject to the fall. So the best people are not, um, are not outside of this spirit of rivalry either. You say, okay, I get it, but, but why are we like this? I mean, why are we fighting so much? Why is there so much time spent marital counseling? Why is that? Why is there always so much tension at work between the colleagues and us? Why? Why do we see countries fighting always? When, why do we need people to intercede to try to help them not fight? Why is it the exact opposite? In verse 3, the second word that Paul uses is really close to the, to the literal translation. It's good. He said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And he hits the root of the problem. This is the diagnosis. Vain conceit. The ASV in the King James Version, actually, it's the best word. Why the NIV didn't take it, I don't know. It's an older word, but it's perfect. They use the word vain glory. Did you hear that? It's so spot on. Vain glory. Paul says, do nothing out of vain glory. What does that mean? Do nothing out of vain glory. The word in the Greek is kinodoxion. You know the doxa, the doxiology, Right? Doxus glory, glory to God. Some of you who are a bit older or you are from a liturgical background, you know the, the doxology hymn, right? From, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This glorification of the living God where you give him praise and honor because he is worthy of it, right? He is, mad. He is majestical. He is powerful. He is all-knowing. He is grace. He is love. So we say we praise him. Kinodoxion is the exact opposite. It's glory starvation. It's pining away as people because we don't have glory. We don't have worth. We don't have significance. We don't have value. And so what Paul is saying, don't do anything as a glory-starved person. What he's saying is don't think, don't speak, and don't act as someone who doesn't have glory. Because when you do, it's going to be ugly. You'll say things you don't want to say. You'll do things that you can't believe that you're doing. You'll live in a way that actually brings dishonor to God. Because of the fall, because of our rebellion against God, sin has separated us from him. And therefore, the glory we used to receive from God and reflect back to Him, we no longer have. And so what do we do? We spend our whole life trying to manufacture our own glory. You say, well, what is glory? Glory is, it literally means weight or value, to have significance, to be important, to be somebody. Glory. Now, if God used to give it to us and we reflect it back to Him, but as a result of the fall, we have to manufacture our own, we spend our whole life, it is amazing, as I pondered this this week and prayed about it, how much time I spend during the day trying to bring myself glory. So much of our time and our energies and our thoughts are to bring positive affirmation of me, who I am. Fundamental problems, Paul says, this is it. We're at baseline Christianity. We're tapping into the very source of, And root of evil and discord and fighting and dissension and broken relationships. Because here's the problem: we know it. And if you don't know Christ, you know, know, listen now, in your heart of hearts, you know that ultimately and eternally, on the grand scale of creation, that you are fantastically insignificant, that you are not important, that you're not all that. You know that. You know in your heart of hearts the result of the fall, and therefore, what do we do? I mean, the worst thing that can happen to us is when someone comes along and they snub us. Or they say, you're nothing. You're no one. You're nobody. You have no worth. You're not significant. And and it cuts so deep because it reveals a truth that, that's true. That's who I am in my sin. We get that understanding the worst thing that can happen is not to be hated. It's not to be opposed. It's not even to be slighted. The worst thing that can happen to you is to be marginalized and considered worthless, valueless, forgotten. Do you know that? My youngest son, some of his friends had a birthday party in the neighborhood a while back. He didn't get an invitation. He was very upset. Why was he upset? No ice cream, no playing, no party, no. No. Why was he upset? He was forgotten. He was forgotten. And he was cut deeply because his friends forgot him. He was forgettable, right? Not valued. The most cutting thing I do in my relationship with my wife is to devalue her as my wife. She'll tell you. If she had an opportunity to say, when, I, when, am I, when am I most hurt by Keith? When I am not valued by Keith. When I'm undercut. Students, when are you, as someone who used to teach, my students are cut most deeply. Not when they fail my class or even get an F on an exam. They're cut most deeply when I treat them as someone who's expendable. Someone who's insignificant. Someone who's worthless. You know exactly how that feels. And it cuts deep. This treatment, and we, we know what it feels like because everybody's experienced it. That you're not important. That you are worthless. It's, it's the driving force that we do everything in our lives to counter that. Everything. The Bible says the heart of man is glory starved. And therefore we live every moment trying to bring ourselves glory. Trying to make ourselves look important. Trying to be worthy. Trying to be significant and important. That means if you feel like life is slipping away because it's temporary, you do everything to make it last, right? As you get older. If you feel marginalized on the sideline, you do everything to put yourself in the limelight. If you feel small, you do everything to make yourself big, bigger. And when someone tells you you're small, you go ballistic. You can't take it. We can't take it. We can't take someone. Now this goes, this is a cosmic, spiritual, theological foundation. It's way lower than the psychological, the emotional. It taps down into the very core of who we are and why we fight and why we're anxious and why our marriages fall apart and why we don't talk to our children. We're afraid of these whispers that we are just but a whisper. We're afraid deep down that we are truly like the grass, of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow. We're afraid of that, that this is all fleeting, that it's temporary and that my life will come to an end and that I will be forgotten. And so we are kinodoxian driven, right? Glory starved driven. It directs us. It drives us. And here's the problem. If there isn't a remedy, if there isn't a medicine, it will destroy us. Your glory starved state will absolutely destroy you. If someone or something doesn't come in and bring you glory. Do you ever ask yourself when someone humiliates you or they slight you or someone do you ever ask why do you get so angry? Why? When your coworker says, what are you an idiot? Why'd you do that? Why do you get why do you go off the deep end? When someone you love calls you stupid or dismisses you, or when a best friend begins to ignore you, why does it cut so deeply? The great 20th century theologian Madonna put it like this. She writes, listen. I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I am always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I am mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again and again. Listen, my drive in life, and this this encapsulates all of humanity. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That has always been pushing me because even though I have become somebody... I still have to prove that I am somebody. And then she says, my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. I mean, that's tragic. But how true? I mean, she hits it to be somebody. As fallen creatures outside of God's will, outside, we know that we're not somebody. And so we do everything through work and relationships and marriage and children and popularity and money to be somebody. It's never enough to actually say, you know what? I'm not somebody. Now, some of you are going to do some psycho babble maneuver on me and go, you know what? She probably had a terrible upbringing and her father didn't love her, you know, and her mother worked too much and she had a poor education. What are you doing? Outside in, right? You're taking the outside bandage and trying to fix the human heart. And I'll be the first to say, a poor education, a poor upbringing, father abandoning their children, all those things will exacerbate and make the situation worse. It'll aggravate it, but it's not the root cause. It's not the problem. The problem's internal. The problem is sin. The problem's the human heart. We are all born kinodoxian, right? We're all born glory starved. Sin, I asked asked Joshua this morning, I go, what causes? He said, sin. Why are we so glory starved? Sin. It robbed it. And he's right. Sin took the glory that we had in Christ and ripped it out. So at the most mundane level, what does this look like? At the essence of sin is you become totally self-centered and self-consumed. Your whole life, it's about you. All the conversations about you, right? All your friendships about you. All your issues about you. So the dialogue, everything's about you. What happens if you do this for quite a period of time? What happens to your relationships? You look up one day, and there's no one else around. Why? Why? Because it's always been about you. The more sinful we become, the more sinful we live, the more self-centered we are, and the, the more our relationships absolutely fall apart. And what happens? We become forgettable. Absolutely forgettable. There's no one around. We're isolated. Does this sound familiar? How many of you have watched a professional athlete? It's usually in football. You know, they make this extraordinary play. And, I mean, it's extraordinary. And you're saying, it's amazing how God gifted that man to do that. And then they get in the end zone and they do that terrible dance. And all the glory just goes, right? You're like, all right, please. And then they keep the camera on them. And what? You're like, ah, ah, ah. And it ruins the moment. Why? Because they're taking all the glory and they want it themselves. And they wrap it in themselves. And what? It pushes people away. If you have friends like this, family members like this, that are always trying to bring themselves glory, it pushes people away, ultimately to total isolation. In the garden before the fall, we received glory from God and we reflected it back to Him. We served Him, not ourselves. And as a result, we we loved Him, He loved us, and you know what? As a a species, as a creature, we were beautiful and we were radiant and we were interesting. We were glorious before the fall because of God. And then we turned from him. We rejected him. And as a result of that, we lost all the glory. And we became kenodoxian creatures, glory-starved creatures. I know I've mentioned this before, but when you look at the animals, when my son and I went camping a few weeks back and we sat there at the lake and we looked at all these animals... They're not doing what we do. They're not running around always talking about themselves. Look at how I fly. Look at how I dig. Look at all the nuts I've stored in this tree. They don't do that. They don't need to do that. They're not killing each other. Why? They're not glory starved. They know who God is. They know who they are. They haven't fallen from God's grace. you know any artists? There are a few in here. You ever notice that an artist is never satisfied with their work? Ever. They paint something say, that's fantastic. They're, the, they're their harshest critics. A musician, that was wonderful. Ugh. Why? The artist knows. The artist is striving for what they know is eternal. They have that sense of what was lost. That glory that we once had that we no longer have. And therefore, even for us lay people who don't know good art or good music, we go, that was fantastic. They go, you have no idea how bad it was. Because they have glimpses of what it's supposed to be. And perfection is in Christ alone. You ever notice that animals don't do art? Why? They don't need to. They're not glory starved like we are. We fall woefully short. But here's the problem. If you go your whole life completely self-centered, it's all about you. Spirit of rivalry. All about you. Your needs. You're going to fight, 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 fight all the way to the end. On judgment day, when you come before the living God, he will say to you the most horrific thing you could possibly hear. And do you know what that is? He will say to you, I don't know you. You will make yourself eternally unforgettable. We do that here. The more, the more self-centered we become, the more we act out our sin, the more people move away. The more we isolate ourselves, the more forgettable we become. And we will come before God and He will say, I don't know you. And what that means is this. It's the most horrific thing that any human being can hear. And what God is saying, you are eternally forgettable. Isolated forever. Forever. Not in my presence, not in my comfort, not in my love. You're going to miss the invitation not to a neighborhood birthday party, but to the eternal party of the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. Not invited. We manufacture and we try so hard to become someone. And the irony is this. The smaller you are, the harder you try to make yourself big. And the harder you try to make yourself someone, the smaller you become. Until ultimately, you're nothing. You absolutely destroy yourself. You know, there's a there's a maneuver in flying that parallels this perfectly. It's called a dead man's spiral. And the plane actually goes into a spiraling maneuver, and one of the mistakes an early pilot will make is a pullback in the stick. He thinks, I can get out of this, right? I'm spiraling downward. Pull back. What does it do? It tightens the spiral inward on itself again and again and again. And you you can figure out why they call it a dead man's spiral. The harder they try, the harder they pull back on the stick, the tighter the spiral gets until, boom, they hit the ground and they're dead. The harder you try to bring yourself glory, the worse and more glory-starved you become until ultimately God himself says, I don't know you. I don't recognize you. You say, you know what? This is a little deeper than I wanted this morning. I thought I was going to be raptured. Here I am listening to you. This is... This is hard, okay? This is not... If you want a nice, easy, soft answer, you don't want kinodoxian, you know, you don't want erythian, you don't want that, then you've got to listen to Oprah or Dr. Phil or maybe, uh, who's that guy, the smiling pastor, Joel Osteen, right? This is scripture, this is Bible, this is real, this is hard. But this gives us real answers. Because if you want to, if you want a, a proper diagnosis, if you want a good remedy a medicine that works and you have to know what the real disease is. And that means you have to say, okay, I'll listen to the hard stuff. So what's the answer to this mess? We see the deception, we see the symptom, we see the cause. What's the remedy? Look at verse 5. Believe it or not, this is the remedy. This is the answer. Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude. Once again, not the best translation. I'm going to pull from the King James Version here. Ready? Better put, let this mind... That is the mind of Christ. Be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? I mean, that's, that's, almost, that's almost one of those verses you just read by and go, yeah, that yeah, sounds, I don't, what? Mind? My mind and Christ's mind, his mind in my mind? I don't get it. My mind's not working, right? What Paul is saying here is the answer to the glory starved state. It's the answer to the spirit of rivalry, to the hyper fighting. It's the answer to all human discord. It's an inside and an outside answer. Now, walk with me here for a minute. There must be, Paul saying, there must be transformation of your heart. Character transformation. You must be changed on the inside or you'll always be glory-starved and always hyper-fighting. you got to be changed. But in order for you to be changed, there has to be an outside event that then changes you. Okay? It's inside. The problem's inside. Therefore, we have to have a medicine that goes inside. But, first... There has to be an outside event that can actually bring the medicine. And he says, that's what happened here with Christ. Christ must do something. God must do some work in order to bring a power to overcome our glory starved states. Look with me. It says, the outside, verse 6. I, I know we're not here until next week, but I want to go forward a little bit. In verse 6, Paul says that Jesus made himself Nothing. Don't read by that quickly either. Jesus Christ, the second person of the holy triune God, God himself, who had all the power and all the glory and all the majesty, he's all-knowing, he's all-present, he's all-powerful, he's majestical, he's glorious, right? He made himself nothing. He emptied himself of all his glory and he became a man. He left the heavenly realm and he came and what he did was he took on our nightmare. He became the glory-starved man that we actually are. I mean, Isaiah tells us what? He came as an ugly man. He came as a homeless man. He came as a man who would be rejected and despised. He came as a man, Isaiah said, who we esteemed not. He came as someone who was unforgettable, who was worthless in the eyes of man in the world. Not only that, He came, and then when he went to the cross, he heard his father say, he he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Put another way, why don't you know me? Why aren't you recognizing me? I prayed to you my whole life, and you've answered me my whole life, and here I am in my greatest hour of need, and now you say, I don't know you? And that's exactly what he heard. He was not esteemed by God on the cross. And the reason is this, deep down, you know, I know, that those words are reserved for us. Deep down, when we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that God is supposed to say to us, I don't know you because of our sin. But he said it to Christ instead. And he said it to Christ instead in Christ's glory-starved state where Christ did the grand, eternal, cosmic substitution. He became glory-starved so we could be glory-filled. And that's the the, the nature of the gospel which is so profound. The second person of the holy triune God was glory-starved so we could have glory. Why? Because of his radical love for us. Because he knows that in our glory-starved states we would absolutely ruin ourselves. He got what we fear most, being glory starved forever. Not just now, but forever. An eternity of glory starvation. And though he was filled, he emptied himself. He became glory starved so that you and I, although undeserving and glory starved, could be glory filled. Jesus Christ became cosmically small so we could be eternally big. In fact, in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, you know, he, he says to God, he says, God, I want them. I want, I want you, me, all those who would repent and believe. He says, I want them to have the glory that I had with you before anything ever was. He prays to the Father that we would have the same glory, the same beauty, the same majesty, the same relationship with God the Father that he had with the Father before anything was ever created says this is what I want for them and therefore he became a man and he lived the life that we could not and would not live and then he died that death and in so doing he gave us the outside medicine so many churches today preach an internal remedy of self right how do you overcome your spirit of rivalry you overcome it the power of positive thinking, right? Read the book, take the do the right thing. And the Bible says it must be outside Christ to you. And so Jesus Christ did the work, the absolutely necessary work to overcome our glory-starved states. And to live as a Christian means this. It means you must take his glory. It means you must stop trying to manufacture it on your own. You must receive the glory that God freely offers through grace and Christ on the cross. So that if you are in this mode, still trying to live a good enough life to make God happy, still you still go to church, you still read your Bible, you still give 10% of your offerings every month, right? You give that to the church thinking, Lord, aren't I being good? Or maybe you're being good and, you, and things aren't going so well in your life, and so you pray to God, God, what's going on here? I'm being good, why aren't you blessing me? You're still trying to bring yourself glory through your works, through your religion. You must empty yourself as Christ did and receive the glory from him. That's how we were created. That's how it was in the beginning. That's how it was before the fall. He poured out his glory and we received it from him. That means you got to be totally and brutally honest with yourself before a holy and living God. That means this, you have to say, if you, if you think to yourself, I am inadequate, do you know why? Because you are. Now listen, don't get all bent out of shape and storm out of here, right? Don't be glory starved at this moment. If you say to yourself, I'm marginal, it's because you are marginal. If you say to yourself, I'm not important, it's because you're not important. If you say life is fleeting, it is fleeting. If you say that my life is just but a whisper, like a grass here today, gone tomorrow, thrown in the fire, that's all true. The believer comes before God and says, this is true. The believer says, I have no glory on my own. The believer says that I I deserve to hear you say, I don't know you and be cast out forever. I deserve, the believer recognizes that. The believer comes before God and says this. I am marginal. Forgive me, Lord. And the believer hears the father say, I know, but my son's not. Here, receive his position of authority. The believer says, I am a sinner through and through. Forgive me, Lord. And they hear God say, I know. Here, take the righteousness of my son. I'm giving it to you freely. You now stand glorious in my eyes. The believer says, I am worthless I am not significant, I am not important, and they hear God say, I know, but my son is significant, my son is worthy, and my son is important, and here, here's my son. Do you see the transition? You must make it. At some point in time, and then for the rest of your life, you must make the transition from being glory-starved to being glory-filled by God, not yourself. It can't be your job. It can't be your marriage. It won't be your kids. It never ends. Madonna's right again and again and again. You will have to try to make yourself somebody and realize you're not somebody until you receive the glory of Jesus Christ. Because when you receive that glory, the glory he exercised to us through the cross, then you will know God the Father and God the Father will know you And you would never hear him say, I don't know you. Away with me, worker of iniquity. You'd hear him say, I know you. You're one of mine. You belong to me. You're covered in my son's blood. You're dressed in the robe of righteousness. Come, enter my rest. Come into my rest. When Jesus Christ becomes your glory... And in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Not only does everything change, but now you have. Probably the thing that you want most leaving here today. You have a power in Christ to not live as a pathetic, glory-starved person. And that means that when glory crises come into your life and someone says to you, you're so stupid, you're so small. You're so worthless. Jesus Christ is standing right there beside you saying, no, you're not. You belong to me. In me, you're big. In me, you're glorious. In me, you're beautiful. That's power. That's real. That's not just, you know, some form of spiritual hypnosis. That's a real person speaking to you about what is real. Your glory in him, not your own. Wives, when your husbands don't convey to you how valuable you are as they ought, or maybe wives not conveying that to the husbands, Christ is right there saying, you are eternally valuable to me. And if you don't believe me, look back to the cross. That's why I died. For you, because you are that valuable to me. That's how much I love you. Guys, if your girlfriend breaks up with you and you feel unlovable, Jesus Christ said, Listen, get it straight, man. I love you more than she ever did, or ever will, or ever could. I loved you when I was hanging on the cross. That's why I stayed. When you don't get the job, when you fail the test, when you feel like the biggest loser, Jesus Christ is saying, listen, you may have lost that battle, but I've won the war. And I won the war for us all. I was crucified. I was buried. They put me in a grave for three days, and I rose again. <laughs> and then I ascended to heaven, and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, and I am going to come again. And it wasn't yesterday, but I am going to come again. In all my glory, in all my honor, and I'm going to gather my children to me. And I'm going to pour out my glory and honor on them. And you talk about a day, and it will be more than you'll see on a billboard or on a television advertisement or a newspaper. It will be a day that the entire universe recognizes. And you'll know when I come. And on that day, he said, I will show you my glory. And you will be glorious in me. When Jesus Christ is your glory, you will be able to overcome and become what Paul talks about in this passage. You'll humbly consider others better than yourself. You won't have to try. You will be someone who looks out not only for your own interest, but the interest of others. Why? Because you're not glory starved. It's not all about you. It's about others. You'll be someone who is tender and compassionate and filled with joy, having the same love and the same spirit and the same purpose in Christ you'll become that person. Why? Because you won't be glory starved, you'll be glory filled. It means this, that the stars may fall from heaven, but you will outlast them because your glory is greater in Christ. Do you know that? The mountains may actually fall into the sea, but your glory is greater in Christ and therefore you'll outlast them. Judgment day will come, but if you're in Christ... You will make it through that as well. And your glory will be complete in Him. If you feel small, recognize that Christ became infinitely small to make you big. If you're constantly bent out of shape, getting rubbed the wrong way, snubbed, and you're just always hurt and bitter and cynical, Christ is saying lovingly, Grow up. Be the big person that you are in me. Stop being glory starved and be glory filled. I emptied myself to bring it to you. Live in like manner. The human disease, the foundation root cause of it all, is vainglory, glory glory starvation. And the only answer that you're not going to hear from your professors, and you're not going to hear from your doctors, and you're certainly not going to hear from your psychologists, the only answer is the glory of Jesus Christ. You want to overcome your glory starved state? You want to help your community. You want to help your family. You want to help your nation. You want to help the world. You want to see peace between the Palestinians and the Israelites. You want to see all that? It's the glory of Christ. It's the gospel of grace. By God's grace, we will live as a people, as one man, as one spirit, as a church. Not glory starved, but glory filled. What a magnificent sight for this community. They would say, what's going on over there? A whole new world. Let's pray. Father, for those who have come into the presence of the living God, we know, Lord, it just takes a glimpse of you and your holiness to reveal how glory-starred we truly are. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would not be so foolish as to chase after those things that we want and think will bring us glory whether it's fame or money or popularity or relationships or children, that we would realize that those are things that, as glory-starved creatures, drive us and direct us and ultimately will destroy us. I pray instead, Lord, that we would humbly come before you and receive the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory that he faithfully poured out on the cross, and then live in light of that real worth, that real significance, that we are valuable because of Him, because of who He is. I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Camden and your church throughout the world that we would recognize the truth of this and live in accordance with it by God's grace. Amen.